Okay, welcome. I'm Dr. Jan Patterson, Professor of Medicine and Infectious Diseases at the Long School of Medicine, UT Health San Antonio. And welcome to our COVID Minutes podcast from our Office of Continuing Medical Education. Our goal is to bring you insights and updates on COVID-19 from experts who have been and continue to be very involved in the COVID response. These on-demand podcasts are aimed at healthcare professionals and are ideal for clinicians on the go and others who want to stay up to date. Today, we are talking with Dr. Tess Barton, Associate Professor of Pediatric Infectious Diseases at the Long School of Medicine and Medical Director of the Pediatric Infectious Disease Program at University Health. She is a clinician educator with particular interest in HIV, adolescent sexually transmitted infections, tropical diseases, and global health. Her previous roles have included the Chief Medical Officer for the Baylor Pediatric AIDS Initiative, and she did extensive global health work in Asia and Africa. Her COVID work actually began when she was working in New York City at the beginning of the pandemic and has continued here. She serves as a pediatric representative on several COVID planning groups with UT and University Health and local school districts. So Dr. Barton, as you know, there have been some important developments with COVID vaccines in children. The vaccines have been recommended for a while in those five years of age and older. And more recently, they were recommended for everyone six months of age and older. And a question that we get a lot of the time is, if COVID is usually a mild illness in children, why should we vaccinate them? Hi, Jan. Well, th thanks for having me. Um, so, uh, yeah, so luckily, you know, children have been mostly spared kind of those severe COVID diseases and hospitalizations that that adults were plagued with throughout the pandemic. Um, remember that there have been about 1300 children who've died of COVID um, in the United States um, and myriad hospitalizations and, and almost 500 of those were actually children under five. So um, although it, it is generally better in children than it is in adults, I don't want to discount it as, as a not severe problem. Um, <clears throat> So I think, you know, in thinking of like, well, why, 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 why would we vaccinate children? I think that that's one is that, you know, like COVID may be mild and it might not be mild um, for children. The, um, I think a second reason for me is that, uh, you know, we see kind of growing evidence for various consequences of COVID in children. Um, you know, uh, the most concerning are like MISC, which is this life-threatening um, inflammatory response, um, as well as long COVID, um, which is, you know, been well described in, in adults, um, you know, with this sort of prolonged fatigue and exercise intolerance and disruptions of your sleep-wake cycle. Um, and, and these aren't really new in kids because we do see these with other, you know, post-infectious fatigue syndromes and other, other diseases, Epstein-Barr virus infection, Lyme disease, HIV-26, things like that. Um, but, uh, but we're still kind of pinning down how common that is in children. And um, even some of the reports have it up to like 50% of children with prolonged symptoms. Um, and, uh, you know, at, at six months, uh, at least in, in, in teenagers, at least. Um, I think the better sort of controlled studies estimate about maybe a 5% overall risk of prolonged COVID, you know, prolonged fatigue illnesses after COVID in children with most of those in teenagers and not as common in younger children, which, you know, doesn't sound like much like, oh, 5%. Um, but if you, you know, 
remember that like 14 million children in the US have been infected with COVID since COVID began, which is like one in five children. Um, you know, if you scale that up, uh, that's like hundreds of thousands of children who may be experiencing, you know, symptoms that are really interfering with their ability to like go to school and play sports and, you know, very intrusive into their into their well-being. Right. So it sounds like that can have a major impact on those children. I know in adults, we're seeing it at a, pre a prevalence of about 20 percent, mm -hmm. but 5 percent uh, in children, that's significant as well. Now, uh, you mentioned the MISC, that's the multi-system inflammatory syndrome in children. That's right. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about that? Sure. So, um, so that is a phenomenon that um, appears to happen usually about two weeks or so. Um, on average, after a COVID infection, so a child gets a COVID infection, many times a very mild infection, like not much, and um, and then they, you know, go on about their business, they get better, and then, you know, a couple of weeks later, even out to a couple of months, um, they begin developing fever, um, diarrhea, abdominal pain, rash, um, and then that progresses very rapidly to like respiratory failure, multi-organ failure. Um, this is actually the, the thing, like many of the COVID deaths that have occurred are actually MISC deaths. Mm -hmm. So um, it looks, you know, it looks very much like sepsis. It looks like, you know, hemophagocytosis. It, it look, I mean, there, there's a lot of things that it kind of mimics, but it's this very like robust, huge systemic inflammation and um and 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 it's been you know associated kind of luckily we had the information kind of early in the pandemic when people didn't have pre-existing immunity to covid um that to be able to tie that to their covid infections now do you see cardiac inflammation with that syndrome absolutely so that's one of the hallmarks is um is 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 myocarditis um or other cardiac abnormalities mm -hmm. One of okay. the diagnostic criteria for it. Yeah. Okay. Well, again, another reason uh, to avoid COVID in children. So, what is the effectiveness of the COVID vaccine in young children? So, in the in you know in the uh, when we first had the trials of like the the older the older older kids five and up, um, those. Um, the you know the vaccine the Pfizer vaccine was very um, immunogenic um, and very effective like ninety five percent effective and so you know it clearly suggested that children could have a very impressive immune response to the vaccine um, in the clinical trials with the younger children the six month to four and five um, for the both the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccines um, that's a little bit less. Um, so the Pfizer three dose series um, is their um, their analysis reports about an 80% effectiveness against um, symptomatic or severe disease and the Moderna two dose series is like 45% effective. Um, and, uh, and so, you know, part of part of that is you're trying to figure out why why that would be because I mean obviously children get lots of vaccines and and in the older kids they had you know really great immune response um, and so they did lower the dose for um, for the the younger kids I think as a um, you know this this vaccine I'm, I don't know maybe you can tell me if your experience in adults is is maybe one of the more reactogenic vaccines right so lots of lots of you know annoying side effects of fever and sore arm kind of, I don't know, maybe on par with like tetanus vaccine or 
flu vaccine. Um, and so I think in their, in their attempt to kind of minimize those reactions, as well as particularly to minimize the potential risk for um, myocarditis. And um, so to kind of decrease side effects, I think they may have sacrificed um, a little bit on the effectiveness side. Mm -hmm. um, but even still, like, even, even if it is 45% effective, like cutting something in half, like it's still better than nothing, right? Right, right. Yeah, that's the case with the flu vaccines a lot of years. It's still worth it to cut down the risk. And yes, we, we, it is a very re reactogenic vaccine in some adults as well. Um, you know, and so there's been a comparison like, well, Shingrix is more reactogenic, but that's probably the only one more reactogenic than this one. But still, you know, with the reactions that people can get, um, they're usually pretty mild and self-limited and much better than getting COVID. So, you know, so we just, uh, you know, tell people about, you know, what to expect. So uh, tell us about the difference in dosing between the approved pediatric vaccines and why the difference. <laughs> uh, you can ask Pfizer and Moderna why. <laughs> I mean, why the difference is how their trials were, you know, were, were structured. But um, so the Pfizer, it is really confusing, actually. And I think I, I feel bad for community pediatricians having to navigate this. So the Pfizer vaccine uh, for the younger kids is six months to four years um at that lower dose and is um is given so is given at zero three to eight and eight i don't know you know like i don't know if the listeners are gonna know what that means but i think pediatricians are pretty familiar with that kind of thing so the first dose the second dose is three to eight weeks later and then the third dose is eight weeks after the second dose mm -hmm. um and then the moderna is six months to five years and it's at zero and four to eight so the for the second dose is four to eight weeks after after that second dose you know and and so pfizer added that third dose because their initial data that they had presented to the fda showed about a 30 to 40 percent effectiveness after two doses and and so <clears throat> the fda was like mm -mm. and they and they sent it you know and so they extended and they added the third dose which brought the effectiveness up to 80 percent moderna didn't do that and so my suspicion is that's why the effectiveness of the moderna vaccine is a little bit lower than the effectiveness of the pfizer but the good thing is they actually built that in that kind of the, the trials didn't, but the CDC and their recommendation has built in that little wiggle room of like three to eight weeks instead of like three weeks, um, you know, after or four weeks for the second dose, because, you know, pediatricians have to juggle giving this vaccine along with all the other vaccines that they're giving to, you know, that have other timing, right, um, um, to, to children. And so it's good that they kind of built built in a little bit of flexibility and that allows pediatricians to not have to, you know, make make kids come in, you know, a zillion times for shot visits. Yeah. Now, um, are we expecting that these children will get boosters and will it be the uh, Omicron bivalent or uh, the Omicron <laughs> or the Moderna Omicron booster in the fall? Or what do we expect about that? Do we expect them to get the revised vaccine as a booster? Yeah, so the what's um I was actually um I have I have on my little notes like question for Jan. Um <laughs> so you know the so I don't know and, and my uh vaccine studies for this disease, right? Because this is an adult and child disease, um, all the stuff for children has really been lagging way behind, you know, what's available for adults. The trials are smaller, you know, they're 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 given 
you know, appropriately a very close scrutiny for safety um, in children. And so like we still, you know, we the we know that the boosters for adults are really important for kind of shoring up that waning immunity. Um, and, you know, the studies in the five to 11 group are still ongoing as far as boosters. So, you know, by the time we have the data in children on the old vaccine, um, which is probably not gonna look that effective because we have new variants going around during the time that the trials are being done, yes, um, yes. you know, we're gonna be like a million variants away. Yeah, I know. And, and so like, it, <laughs> I, so my question is like, what are the prospects for having an updated vaccine, you know, and how, how nimble can we be in, in, in updating the vaccine in the future, like we do flu? Right. So, you know, uh, from what I've seen, you know, Pfizer is developing a bivalent vaccine, which has, um, you know, uh, directed against the original uh, spike protein and, and then modified for the Omicron, but that's the earlier Omicron variant, you know? Uh, and then uh, the Moderna vaccine is my understanding is just gonna be directed at Omicron, but again, it's the earlier Omicron. Uh, but it's also my understanding that Pfizer is gonna ask the FDA for flexibility in updating the vaccine as the variants change. And, you know, we do this with flu vaccine. I mean, obviously flu vaccine doesn't have to get reapproved every year. Um, you know, they just, uh, they just change it to adapt to what's out there. So, um, you know, hopefully we can make this process the same because I agree with you. Otherwise we're always gonna be chasing the variants. <laughs> yeah, I have, I have this fantasy of having like co-flumonia vaccine yeah, every, exactly. every, every year. Um, yeah, I mean, I think, and the other thing kind of along those lines is that, you know, I struggle every day, I get called from either the emergency room or one of the kind of, you know, chronic health services, renal or hemonc or whatever, um, with kids who are under 12, who, you know, they're on steroids, they're high yeah. risk, they have diabetes, they're, you know, immune compromised or, um, you know, or whatever. And they, you know, they test positive and I don't have, you know, we don't have monoclonals or therapeutics for, for children under 12, which is kind of, you know, emphasizes why it's important to attempt to prevent them from getting infected. Um, because if they do get infected, I don't have much to offer them. Yeah. Especially for those chronically ill children, mm -hmm. probably very important. Now, um, you know, one of the concerns initially with the, uh, vaccine, in uh, younger people and uh, teenagers in particular was myocarditis. Is that still a concern? Um, it is, it is still a concern. I mean, it, 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 I have been lucky to have not seen any cases, although I don't, I do know that we had a couple of cases in San Antonio at one of the other hospitals, you know, this got a lot of press, um, although it's actually quite rare. And, um, and, and, you know, the first reports of that came out when not long after we started giving Pfizer vaccine to the, you know, 12, the 12 and ups. And, um, but we see it actually with both products. It's been observed with both products. So um, it's not that like one, you know, is less, less than, than the other, um, it may be. And so, the, uh, as you mentioned, the highest rate is in, in teenage boys and that, and young adult males that sort of 12 to 24 year age group. And, um, and kind of depending on which data set is being used, um, that's anywhere from 60 per million doses to 300 per million doses. Um, that's sort of a weird number to, to, to use. I, I kind of like to 
reverse the calculation and, and that means it's about a one in 3000 to 15,000 chance um, mm -hmm. per dose yeah. of um, those that's sort of the odds per dose. Um, it's, it's about 10 times or more less likely in in girls and in females in general. So one in two to, you know, 300,000. Mm -hmm. um, so it's, you know, it, it's not it's not insignificant. Um, the cases have generally been, you know, they've almost all been mild and, you know, self-resolving and and have gotten better. Um, it's interesting. There was actually just uh, recently a report with some data from like the Canadian Public Health Service that um, showed that they um, the risk of myocarditis with that second dose was like five times less if the dose was given later. Oh, um, so if the dose was given, yeah, so if the dose was given more than 30 days and even even lower, if it was given more than 56 days, I don't know why 56 days, but, you know, if it was if it was like two months out instead of a few weeks out, that the, the risk of myocarditis was a little bit lower. And I've only seen that in this one, you know, this one report. And so I do think that that really warrants, you know, some validation in other data sets, because I think that that would potentially impact, you know, the um, the vaccine schedule but but and we learned from adults too that kind of delaying that second dose could actually be yeah. better in terms of immunity so that might be better on both counts yeah i think i mean i think that you know when 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 the trials as i'm sure you know when the trials were first designed the idea is like let's get people immune as quickly as possible to sort of yes, quell yes. the uh quell the um the 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 pandemic but i do think that you know like shouldn't we be looking at like what's the optimal way you know to 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 deliver this now that we have some you know pre-existing immunity and this thing is continuing to circulate is there is there a way that we can you know optimize the, kind of the effectiveness using you know allowing that kind of natural waning of immunity so that you truly get a boosting effect as opposed mm -hmm. to just like shot 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 so that you yeah. you know your own antibodies are kind of clearing the mrna that you're making as you make it yeah um, so uh, and, and it's my understanding from talking with other pediatric colleagues that when they've seen this it is very mild and and you know is usually self-limited with some anti-inflammatories and still your risk of myocarditis is covid is higher than your risk with myocarditis with the vaccine so that was exactly what i was going i wanted to right i wanted to say that because that's usually you know when i have parents who ask me that's exactly mm -hmm. what i what i tell them and and so you know we actually this is something where i think not really pediatricians per se but i i think where we get better information out of young people and out of kids than you guys get out of adults because adults have so many comorbidities i mean they're doing stuff to their bodies and they've had lots of wear and tear and so um you know if you want to see like how how does this behave in like an otherwise healthy person you know there was this study from like the big 10 athletes do you, do you know about the study mm -mm. Yeah, so so it was kind of early in the pandemic and and so they were, you know, in order to play, they were just like routinely testing the athletes in the Big Ten um, weekly. And yeah. then if they were, you know, if they tested positive, they were, you know, they couldn't play and the game was canceled or whatever. And then they they put them through a battery of, you know, stress testing and cardiac MRIs and all these other studies in order to determine if they were, you know, safe to return to play. Because at that point, nobody really knew, like, you know, was this was this virus going to impact, you know, impact their ability to be athlete, like competitive mm -hmm. athletes. Mm -hmm. And so we have we so they ended up having like thousands of people who tested positive and who underwent just like routine, extensive cardiac 
you know, evaluation. And they had about a 2% of them had evidence of myocardial involvement. And almost all of those had you know, mild disease, like, like their COVID was a mild mm -hmm. disease or even asymptomatic. They had no idea that they had any cardiac involvement. Yeah. And so I think that lets us know a lot of, you know, pretty good information, like, like this virus, you know, is cardiotropic, like this yeah. virus, a, a, a you know, attacks the heart or, or, or instigates the immune system to attack the, the, the risk of, you know, myocarditis with, with COVID infection is not only like higher than it is with vaccine. It is like hundreds and hundreds of times higher. Okay. So, um, so, you know, we've learned from studies that, um, that people tend to trust their own doctor or their own children's doctor best for information. So um, just as a summary, you've made a lot of good points here, but as a summary, what would you tell uh, those healthcare providers uh, to tell the parents of these children? Yeah, I, I, have, I have kind of three talking points for them. And that, that is one, to, to reassure parents that the COVID vaccines are safe. They were safe in clinical trials. We have vaccinated millions of children um, and and so we have experience like extensive experience with this vaccine and the vaccine although not perfect is very very safe um, that the vaccines are effective that they are not 100 percent effective and that we have to be you know we have to acknowledge that um, and that's okay you know if they're 50 percent effective that's better than 0% effective, right? So if, if I if I can cut my chance in half of something bad happening to me, you know, I'm going to like put on my seatbelts in the car or wash my hands after I use the public restroom, right? I'm gonna use preventative measures to prevent, you know, bad things from happening to me, even if it may not be 100% effective. Right, right. Um, and then the last thing is that, that maybe the most important is that, you know, vaccinating children um, children don't you know, like li live alone in a vacuum, right? Children, uh, by default, they live in in a, <laughs> in a structure with other human beings, and um, and so um, vaccinating children is really an important piece and kind of an overall picture of all the things that you're going to do to try to keep you know co keep this virus out of your house, you know. And so like um, you know, looking at your own family, you know, mm -hmm. is there somebody who's vulnerable in the family, right? Or is there an old person or a person with heart disease or cancer, you know, somebody that you want to protect um, and, and that you don't want, you know, that, that kid bringing it home. You know, we know pre-COVID pre times, children in like daycare and elementary school, you know, those are like the festering cesspools of germs, right? Anybody right. who's been a parent of a young right. child knows they go to school, they go to daycare, mm -hmm. they come home and they give it to everybody else. Right. And this virus isn't, you know, isn't any different. And maybe the child's not going to get severely ill, but there may be somebody else who might, you know, there's like mm -hmm. 140,000 COVID orphans, right? Children whose caregiver yes. died of COVID. Uh, yeah. So, so, you know, like, looking, is there a vulnerable person? Or even if there's not a vulnerable person, is there a person who can't miss work, right? Like somebody needs to be going to work to, right. bring, you know, to pay exactly. the bills. Exactly. And is that going, you know, if somebody is out for a week with their illness or God forbid hospitalized, you know, is that going to like financially devastate the family? And so, you know, kids, if we can do something, every little thing that we can do just to try to keep 
this virus out of your house. You know, kids are going to school on their day-to-day -day activities. They are in indoor congregate settings. They, they, they can't not be around other people. And so they're, they're going to potentially get this, get this thing. And so if we can kind of layer on those layers of protection and include, you know, vaccinating the child as one of those layers, um, that I think is a, is something that parents can relate to. Yes. Well, you've given us a lot of good reasons and a good summary there for why we should be vaccinating our kids. Thank you very much. Sure. Thanks for having me.